0: This is a TSN original podcast.
1: Just a quick note for listeners, this podcast includes some adult language and subject matter.
2: I remember one, one time,
0: Bill Friday was the referee. He's screaming at me, I'm getting ready to take the face off. And I turn around and look at him I'm like, what? He's like, get me the draw. And his eyes are bulging out, I'm like, okay. And I uh, got the draw back and Turbo wound up and took a slap shot right towards Friday, and Friday sees it coming, and he's trying to get out of the way, and I swear the puck had like a beacon on it because the puck was curving and turning and kind of chasing him almost, and I don't remember if it hit him or whatever, but Steve got kicked out of the game.
3: That's something you don't see too often today
1: in hockey. Steve played in a different era. There was more thuggish behavior and political correctness was pretty much a foreign concept. Steve had many names, like Steve Meathead Durbano and Demolition Derby, but one of those nicknames stands out. In some circles, Steve was known as Mental Case. And there's one question that I kept coming back to as I dug deeper into Steve's story and why he acted the way he did. What made him the most violent player to lace up skates?
0: After Banner throws a right hand, hits the linesman, hits them again. In they go to the ice. As we told you those linesmen have a tough job.
1: Steve was traded in the middle of the 1973 74 season. Going from the Blues to the Pittsburgh Penguins, he was traded alongside Battleship Bob Kelly to provide a little muscle and security for his new team
0: reputation, one of the best in the NHL.
1: Steve's effect on the Penguins was felt immediately. He scored a goal in his first game and reportedly broke the nose of an opponent in a 6-2 win over Vancouver. During his first game in Pittsburgh, Kelly and Durbano had one assist between them, but also a whopping 26 penalty minutes that got them co-first star honors and a huge ovation. They raised their arms together in the air. Steve was welcomed by fans and teammates alike. We were playing an exhibition game against the Cleveland Crusaders in Pittsburgh I mean, it was
4: a big brawl because uh, you know the Crusaders were WHA and we were NHL and so I think De might have started and he was usually starting them.
1: That's Chuck Arneson, a man who was close to Steve and who was his teammate for four seasons first with the Penguins, then the Kansas City Scouts, and finally with the Colorado Rockies. This was during the heart of the 1970s. The Broad Street Bullies were about to win back-to-back Stanley Cups using intimidation and brutality. But back to Chuck's memory, just causing a line brawl didn't push the envelope far enough for Steve.
4: But the refs escorted him off the ice through the gate to our dressing room. And instead of going in the dressing room, he went around with the Zamboni is, and he ran on the concrete on his case jumped onto the zamboni, and jumped over the glass onto the ice and get back into the fight. Like, like, where is he coming from?
1: <laughs> One note Chuck left out of his story was that the Crusaders pulled out of the game. They just left the ice after devano set off that line brawl. It's not easy to go back in history 40 years and understand a particular person's motivations. But what I was able to do was speak with some people who spent a lot of time with Steve during his playing days. Here's Arneson again. I I think people think that these guys live like that all the time, what you see on the ice, and they don't. You know, they can't. They can't
4: be that aggressive in society and get away with it.
1: Chuck shared a room with Durbano, and he confirmed what I'd been hearing about Steve. That during his time in the NHL and WHA, Steve was already using drugs. Tell me about what you saw of him in in the the room that you shared. I mean, was he doing? Was he doing, Was that during the period of time when he was doing coke or something else? Uh,
4: well, he was doing weed for sure, no question of that. I, mean, I yeah, he was into the coke too. It was not, I don't think, quite as heavy as like as he got to kind of thing. I think he went over the deep end when he got caught at the airport with that stuff. It was pretty taboo in the seventies. I mean, it was, you know, it's, it's kind of more mainstream now, you know, I think in the eighties and nineties, the young executives and that were all dabbling in coke. But in the seventies, I mean, it was like heroin practically. So, but Durbo had that problem. And I mean, it's, it was pretty common knowledge and, that was it.
1: On October 19, 1974, Steve collided with Flyers tough guy Andre Moose Dupont. It was the third game of the season for the Penguins, but it was Steve's first because he'd been hit with a two-game suspension for that line brawl that Chuck told us about against the Cleveland Crusaders.
4: He broke his wrist in Pittsburgh, quite badly, and his hand started to shrink. It was so severe, his hand was actually getting smaller. Like uh, I really don't know what it was, but that's what was happening.
1: I've read articles where Steve had to have three or four, even five surgeries on his wrist and hand to correct the damage. A number of people who knew Steve all seemed to agree that this injury set him back professionally and emotionally. Here's Dale Tallon.
2: Then he just strictly relied on, you know, being a tough guy and not really relied on much of his skill.
1: Arneson helped paint a picture of how Steve's injury affected him during his career. He was in constant pain,
4: and the doctors had him on all kinds of painkillers. That was kind of the start of the end for for Steve. So it was not good news. And I think he really really got into the bad stuff after that.
1: He had started using cocaine while he was playing, but an exceptionally bad hand injury boosted his appetite and his need for it. He was desperate for relief from pain, but instead, he discovered what would become a harmful addiction.
0: So I wasn't a drinker. I guess if I was a drinker, I would have just become more of a drinker. You yeah. know, most modern players have a drinking problem yeah. in sports. You know, it's pretty obvious. Uh, well, now, you know, it's, now it's the drugs.
1: If you ask the average hockey fan about the NHL in the 1970s, many people would talk about Bobby Orr and about the two Stanley Cups that the Flyers won.
0: It's all over! The Flyers have won the second in a row! The Flyers have won their second consecutive Stanley Cup!
1: But the most successful franchise during the brawling 1970s was the Montreal Canadiens. They collected six Stanley Cups during this decade. The game is over!
0: The Montreal Canadiens have won the Stanley Cup for the fourth consecutive time and for the 22nd time in their history!
1: I spoke with one player who won five of those championships with the Canadians. He was a childhood friend of Steve Durbano. And his name is Steve Shutt. He just spiraled. And not only did he spiral hockey-wise, then, you know,
4: he'd he'd hurt his hand where virtually the last five years he couldn't shoot anymore. He couldn't fight. He couldn't do anything. Virtually his career was over. Uh, He had zero money I don't believe and you know you're looking at this and I I know he was looking at he says like I'm a failure and it's gotta be pretty pretty frustrating pretty disappointing pretty uh, you know to be looking at that to be that close And to fail so badly. Uh, And I think that's what he was thinking.
1: It seems to be pretty straightforward. A guy has a promising hockey career ahead of him, and an injury derails his plans. It certainly is a convenient way to explain at least some of Steve's behavior. But I wondered if the people he was closest to, his family, felt the same way.
4: Honestly, (laughs) Rex. I mean, we lived a precarious life.
1: This is Lisa, Steve's ex-wife.
4: We were the um, Bonnie and Clyde, uh, the people you stayed away from because of his injuries and his temperament on the ice. I think that, like in the seventies, Rick and. Shit went down that was allowed to go down and should never have gone down, but it did, and to his
1: demise. It took a while to track down Lisa, and as you can gather, it was sometimes a struggle to have a conversation with her. I'd heard a lot about her from former friends and teammates of Steve. It may have been 40 years since they last saw Lisa, but they remember her well. It didn't take much to jog Dave Hansen's memory.
2: You know, at the time he was married to a wife that was, <laughs> put it mildly, very outgoing and pretty vivacious. You know, there was a running joke around town. We'd go to a teammate's birthday party and the wife would bring stuff and his wife would bring brownies. And everybody would joke, well, don't eat the brownies unless you want to get a buzz. You know, <laughs> you know you'd be at a, at that birthday party with the brownies and the Duranos didn't show up uh, with a present for the birthday boy, so she'd lift her blouse and say, here, I got a couple for you, here, grab hold, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So she, so she, uh, and she was a very attractive woman too, so it's, uh, you know, they made a good-looking couple.
1: But their relationship wasn't all fun and parties. I mean, you probably could have guessed that they had a fairly rocky marriage. It was complicated.
4: Their relationship was volatile.
1: No doubt there'd be many unusual moments that would come along with being Steve's traveling roommate. When we return, I learn about one of them. What it's like to get a call from Lisa in the middle of the night, while Steve's still out on the town. Did you know there's a new way to get TSN? TSN Direct lets you stream all your favorite live sports and so much more. And it's all in
0: stunning HD. All you need is internet. What are you waiting for? Go to tsn.ca
1: slash subscribe.
4: His world, when I knew him, revolved around Lisa. What I saw and heard, it was pretty crazy. Pretty crazy stuff. They love to hate each other, (laughs) maybe not hate each other, but love to disagree with each other and have stats. I remember the phone ringing at 3.30 in the morning and, It would be Lisa, and it was durable. And he'd sit here and give him the phone, and they'd get into a battle because she ran out of money or something, and he was gonna had to send her money the next day or wire it or whatever. I mean, it was continually battling.
1: One especially bad fight the two got into happened while Steve was playing with the Bulls. The team was on the road in Cincinnati, and it was the night before the game. Steve's teammate Phil Roberto gave me his recollection of what happened.
2: Lisa Durbano called Steve's room and Frank Mahavich was his roommate who answered the phone and told Lisa that uh, Steve wasn't in. So Lisa got all upset and uh, turned around and called the coach, who at the time was uh, Glenn Somner, and told Glenn that uh, she was going to kill, tell Steve that she was going to kill the dog smash all the furniture the next morning on our morning skate Glenn came up to me and told me the situation with Lisa if that was possible and I said I don't know Glenn anything is possible so uh, I think he went went over and told Steve that uh, he needed to go home
1: Steve bounced around a ton during his final four years in pro hockey I'm going to try to run through this just to explain how often he was on the move First, the 23-year-old signs a blockbuster deal with the Penguins, worth almost a million and a half dollars. When Blair was general manager, he signed me to a 12-year package.
0: Well, I guess he's going to tie me up for the rest
1: of my career. It wasn't long before Pittsburgh's management started to regret their decision. Early in the 1975-76 season, Steve stormed out of two practices in 10 days, calling them a waste of time and hurling his stick into the stands. The team promptly suspended Durbano and kept his paycheck while he was out. Once reinstated, he resumed his reckless style of play, setting multiple team records for penalties and penalty minutes in a game. Clearly, things weren't working out with the Penguins. He got shipped to Kansas City in early 1976. The undisciplined penalties continued. He finished with a league-high 370 penalty minutes between the two teams. Eat your heart out, Dave Schultz. And at the end of the year, the scouts relocated to Colorado and became the Rockies. Steve kept piling up penalty minutes at a record pace, 129 in just 19 games. Steve was weighed by the Rockies after he picked up his third misconduct penalty this season when he refused to go to the penalty box after a fight. But he did get close enough to the penalty box area to fire his helmet like a missile at his opponent, Bob Plager. Steve reported to the Rockies minor league team in Rhode Island and he didn't last long there either. He quit the team mid-game, reportedly over the length of the intermissions. After a brief stint with the Detroit Red Wings, Durbano wound up in Birmingham, playing for Gilles Leger, who was the team's coach and would later become GM. The
3: thing about about Steve was that he was unpredictable. And, uh, you know, and, and the players
1: that played against him knew it. In an interview, Steve revealed a little bit about his time playing pro hockey in Alabama.
0: I was still married at that point. Um, got back into the cocaine in Birmingham. I'd seen the career going down the dumper. You know, I just could see, like, things just weren't going, you know, like, being suspended. My, You know, I just wasn't the player that I was before. Uh just, you know, like started to fall apart, you know. I didn't handle it too well, you know, I went to drugs.
1: I've heard a lot of stories about Steve and his violent behavior. But there's one story where Steve got into it with Bulls owner John Bassett. You almost have to hear it to believe it. Here's a setup. Steve signed with the Detroit Red Wings, but was then traded to the Bulls. And because of the way the two teams did their payroll, Steve thought that he was owed $400 from the Bulls. While the Red Wings paid their players weekly, Birmingham paid their players every game.
3: He comes in the office and he says to John, "You owe me four hundred dollars." John says, "I don't owe anybody four hundred dollars." He goes, "John, you owe me four hundred dollars." John says, "You go to Detroit if you want your four hundred dollars. I don't owe you anything." Benham says, "John, I went to Detroit. You owe me four hundred dollars." He says, "If you don't give me my four hundred dollars," I'm going to break both your legs. <laughs> so anyway, John jumps up. and He turns around, he comes into my office, and he says, Jill, did you hear that? I said, yeah, I heard it. He says, what should I do? I said, pay the 400 John. It's 200 a leg. <laughs> so that was, that's the kind of stuff that went on. It was pretty funny when you're thinking it.
1: That's just a small sampling of what the baddest man ever to play hockey did in his career. But there's one last anecdote I want to share with you that happened during his final year in pro hockey. Steve's back with the St. Louis Blues, the team that gave him his first shot in the NHL.
0: Started playing, wasn't doing too bad, then the New York incident. So on the far side. Sutter just scored a hat trick, three straight goals, so the whole bench jumped off to congratulate him. Fatio was in the penalty box. We're skating by their bench, Nick's coming out of the penalty box and as he's skating across the ice, I'm the last guy. And as I look up, I see a punch coming. Was that It might I'm not sure. So I duck the punch and I come up and I chop him on the shoulder with the stick. Like, you know, like, stay away. I don't want any part of you. Yes, it's Sturbano. time is a stick, you gotta take a guess. I start skating in the penalty box and... I'm called the center ice, and they go, you go to the dressing room, you've got a match penalty. I spit my gum out, and I said, you know, and I just told them, I said, I don't believe it. You're calling a match penalty for something like that? I said, it's obvious you don't want me in this league. Tempers are still a little bit high out there. So I, I started skating to the dressing room, and I headed for Nick. The battle had no place. Sunday went across the ice for no reason at all. Now, I'm upset. I'm match penalty. I'm figured, okay, you now I'm going to take my shot. I just want one shot. Just as he went to grab me, I got one shot, and I came almost, I was right down the crouch, and I landed a shot, the best shot I probably ever threw, and he didn't go down. Just rocked him. He just rocked him back for a second, and I figured, am I in trouble? Jim, he's got a history of that kind of action. He's been suspended in every league he has played in.
1: The bench is emptied. Even the two coaches got into it with each other. That's incredible. At this point, Durbano and Fatiu, are split up and the refs are trying to restore some sort of order. They toss Steve out of the game. The wants
0: to come back again. That's when I went off the ice in the crowd—they're booing and hissing and throwing shit at me. I grabbed my ankles and I mooned the crowd and went off the ice. Was going to the to the crowd.
1: Steve finished the game with 45 minutes worth of penalties, good for a third all time at that point and a very memorable final chapter in New York.
0: That was basically the end of my career.
1: That would be Steve's last full season in pro hockey. And after all was said and done, Durbano finished his time in the NHL with 13 goals, 60 assists, and one unsurprising record, one that he still holds to this day. Steve had the distinction of having the highest number of penalty minutes per game. He ended up spending a whopping 5 minutes and 7 seconds on average in the penalty box. One quick qualifier. We didn't count anyone with fewer than 150 games played. In the next episode, Steve's morally reckless behavior doesn't end with his career. He ventures into the criminal underworld and winds up paying the price. Coming up next time on Durbano. The minute I walked into
0: customs, the doors closed behind me and everybody else following went right out to their cars. And I knew then it was, they were onto it. And they picked up the one shoe and turned it over and they go, well, it looks normal and put it down. And they picked up the other shoe and they took a pen out. He jabbed the pen into the area and pulled it out. And he just goes, what's this? Oh, well, I said I was set up. You know, I was down in South America and- This I mean, is your defense. Like, uh, that's, that's my story, yeah. A lie though, Steve. Pardon? It's a lie though. It's a, it was a lie, yeah. I can remember sitting in that reception area looking out the glass and seeing some of these guys going up and down the stairs and figuring, Jesus, is this where it all ends? Is somebody going to stick a knife in my back? Could have happened. Could have happened. Came close to it once.
5: This story is reported and hosted by Rick Westhead. Senior producer for Durbano is David Krixt. Executive producer is Ken Volden. This show was produced and edited by Sam Glisserman. Mixing and sound design by Sean Pattendon. Research, fact-checking, and locating guests for all interviews was done by Takia Singh and Emily Hanskamp. Our theme song was composed for us by Jonathan Gallant of Billy Talent. Show art and design by Vince Arnone and Eric Kirk. Website developed by Pete Stewart. Thanks to everyone who chose to share their stories about Steve with us. John Durbano, Bill Roberto, Rosie D'Amano, Lisa Ostrick, Gil Leger, Steve Shutt, Karen Pappin, Dale Talon, Dave Hansen, Dave Schultz, Ken Lindsman, and Chuck Arneson. Special thanks to Matt Cade, Darren York, Corin McCallum, Daniel Zekchevsky, Brett Mitchell, and Bruce Massoff for all their help on this project. Archival audio clips courtesy of W5, CHCH, the NHL, and the WHA. For more bonus content, head to tsn.ca slash durbano. There you can check out some archival photos, a character list, and the entire credits for the show. Thanks for listening.